Welcome to Pushing the Limits, the show that helps you reach your full potential with your host, Lisa Tarmati, brought to you by lisatarmati.com. Hey everyone, welcome back to Pushing the Limits. So excited to have you with me today. I have uh, a gentleman by the name of Brian Graham with me today. Now, Brian is a peptide expert. Uh, We've done one episode on Pushing the Limits with Dr. William Seeds already on peptides, but here we go into a bit deeper dive. I am actually working with Brian. Uh, He's at the Boulder Longevity Institute um, that I really, really love. Dr. Elizabeth Hewitt is, is the medical director there and Brian works under her and he is the the peptide specialist. So we're going to be diving into this very, very exciting realm of peptides. So if you've been hearing lots of things, reading lots of things, want to know what the heck this is all about, then this is the episode for you, and I hope you get a lot of benefit out of it. Um, before we uh, head over to the show, just want to remind you about our Patreon program. If you'd like to support the Park podcast, we would love you to do that. Um, you can go to patreon.lisatarmody.com and uh, there's a whole lot of member benefits and it supports the show um, it helps us keep this fantastic content going out free to everybody as you can imagine there's a big team behind this costs a lot of money to put out these episodes it costs a lot of time and research to be able to stay up to play with all of these um, specialists and scientists and doctors so if you'd like to support that work please head over to patreon.lessetermity.com and also come and work with us if you need help with a health problem if you want to do running if you want to improve your running times you want to run faster longer um, do ultra marathons do marathons whatever you're into we have our run coaching programs we also have our health optimization programs where we help people with difficult health journeys uh, whatever problems you're dealing with and that is also part of our epigenetics program which is all understanding your DNA and how to optimize your genes to the right environment. So this is like getting a user manual for your body. You've probably heard me talk about this ad nauseum on a couple of different podcasts. It's very, very exciting. We've taken now over a 1,000 people through this program. It is very exciting. It does help people understand how to optimize their nutrition, their um, workouts, what time of the day, your circadian rhythms, your mood and behavior, your hormones, all these different areas. Um, so that is our flagship program, our epigenetics program. So make sure you check that out. You can find out about that at lisatarmity.com and hit the work with us button. And there you'll see all of the things that we do. We have our speaking, so I do a lot of speaking, obviously. We have also our books. We have our Mindset Academy. We have a Running Coaching Academy as well as the Epigenetics Program, and we also do DNA testing with the DNA Company, which is a slightly different program with a more specialized focus. So if you'd like help with any of that, we would love to hear from you. Please always reach out to us, support at Lisa Tarmody if you've got any questions. If you've got a thing that you're really struggling with and you don't quite know whether we're a good fit for you, just reach out and we can help you and guide you and put you in the right direction if we're not the right place. Okay, right over to the show now with Brian Graham. Hey everybody, welcome back to Pushing the Limits. Today I have an exciting episode for you with an expert on this area that I've been interested in for quite some time uh, and it's all around peptides. Today I have Brian Graham with me from the Boulder Longevity Institute. Welcome to the show. Fantastic to have you. Thank you so much for having me, Lisa. I'm, I'm really excited to speak with you today. 
the Boulder Longevity Institute is my favourite institute. <laughs> we have Doctor, we've had Doctor Youth on, I think, four times, and I have my mum just for backstory uh, under both Brian and Doctor Youth uh, with their different areas of specialty. So um, that's just to give you a little bit of background and how much I trust these guys, trust them with her life. So um, they must be have something good to say. So Brian, you are a peptide specialist. Can you just give us a little bit of an idea about your background for a start? Is how did you get into peptides and then what peptides are probably a good place to start yeah absolutely so and i'm brian graham i'm the peptide specialist here at boulder longevity institute um when i first came into the peptide space it was more so in the bro science side of things actually looking for performance optimization healing recovery and i just had a friend that was quite savvy in the space and his livelihood depended on it at the time and he provided some guidance there and that was about a little over 10 years ago. So it's wow. been quite wow. quite a journey here. Yeah. But <laughs> to actually make it a little bit more, I would say, um, appropriate and medically managed, so to speak, we, or I actually met Dr. Yurth while she was working at orthopedic practice. And we had some conversations regarding, you know, what's coming down the pipe as far as medical innovations go and some educational training that she was going through at the time through the American Academy for Anti-Aging and Regenerative mm-hmm. Medicine. And somehow I uh, managed to weasel my way in <laughs> with her. She, again, was very gracious and invited me to this, this conference, which essentially led to formal certification through the American Academy for Anti-Aging and Regenerative Medicine, through the International Peptide Society, with ongoing education through uh, the Seed Scientific Research and Performance Institute. Mm-hmm. So a lot of science, a lot of information, bringing in, again, medical innovation to clinical relevance and creating basically this collaborative effort to do so on a large scale or an effective scale with uh, incorporating this in the clinic. So that was a few years back. And again, ongoing, I would say, refinement in this space, to say the least. So. Brilliant, absolutely brilliant. And I've had Dr. William Seeds on as well, um, yeah. real expert in, in Rita's book, uh, Peptide Protocol, uh, the first the first one. And I've been toying with the idea of doing the actual certification program, but as it's bloody difficult to get the stuff into New Zealand, which we're sort of struggling with at the moment, um, I'm sort of going to hold off on the space for a little little yeah. little bit longer. But it's um, it's fascinating, and I'm really excited about the space because the potential of the space to help with so many different things is what's got us both excited. So let's dive into then what the heck are peptides and why yeah. the hell do we need to know about them? <laughs> so I would say the, the peptide space has like come across the headlines and people are, you know, learning about all these different types of peptides, but it's actually been around for quite some time, even in the traditional medic- medicine space, right? You know, a more common peptide that people might be familiar with is something along the lines of insulin, which categorically it is a peptide, although your physician practitioner might not understand it. that categorization, it is a peptide. Mm-hmm. Essentially what it does is it helps to regulate a given process. And that's what peptides do. They are essentially a key to a door or an opportunity, an opportunity to either lock a door of a given process or open it up and allow you know, things to happen. Like in the case of insulin, regulating blood glucose, because dysregulation is associated with pathology, you know, neuropathic pain, losing fingers and toes, eyesight, all that stuff. So peptides are hugely important, naturally occurring 
products, or at least modeled after naturally occurring products that are, are signaling molecules within the body, stimulate a given process. Okay. So it's like an extra instructions for the body to do a particular thing, like uh, sort of a bit of code basically to go in and say, hey, make this or do this. Um, is that right? Is that a good way of explaining yeah, it? Exactly, exactly. I mean, it could be analogous to like a dimmer switch on the wall too. You're turning up the light or yep. turning down the light, but that's going to correspond with the given physiologic mechanism. I mean, with the peptide space, you know, to talk about clinical relevance, we have well over a hundred that we utilize clinically. Okay. Mm -hmm. Whether we're trying to induce a tanning effect, improve libido, <laughs> help with immune function, musculoskeletal, you know, resiliency and integrity, you know, all these things can be targeted on a cellular level with a given peptide. So wow. giving your body what it knows or things that it knows how to utilize effectively, just giving it a little bit of a boost, pressing on the accelerator a little bit for that goal in mind. Okay, so so in a peptide is actually, um, it, it, it's I think it's less than 50, correct me if I'm wrong, 50 amino acids in, in a combination. So this is like the, the building blocks of protein. So what is the difference then between a protein and a peptide? Yeah, so when you have more, I would say, amines or more, you know, um, like a protein that is a large peptide, essentially, it has more opportunity to have more binding sites or more activity. Okay. Mm -hmm. the smaller you get with a given peptide or a smaller sequence that you get with the length of those amino acids, the more specific it's going to be for a given cellular target. Okay. Uh -huh. so there's peptide hormones. There's obviously large proteins like um, you know, human growth hormone, for example, very large protein. But if you basically chop that up, it is made up of peptides. Okay. And why would you want to chop it up though? Like, why would you like, why can't I just eat a steak and then yeah. I've got all of the proteins, 5,800 and a piece of, you know, steak. <laughs> why isn't that yeah. like all of the peptides together? You know, like, you know what I'm trying to say? Yeah. So unfortunately it's not that easy. I mean, there's a lot <laughs> of, environmental factors that inhibit your body's ability to make a given peptide. You know, it's all about prioritization, utilization, but sometimes the body can get overwhelmed with an accumulation of stressors, which when you're bogged down, you got a monkey on your back, it's a lot harder to run. Okay. Even though you still got feet, you know, you're not going to be able to utilize them effectively because of all these compounded stressors that can again, make that difficult. So when it comes to eating a steak, you know, hopefully your digestive tract is for one in good order to effectively break that down into the amino acids that make up those proteins, but it's not always that straightforward. And again, there's so many different multi-system involvements that take place to produce a given peptide that a lot of things have to go right for that to happen, which is right. why, you know, the aging process is associated with, you know, a decreased ability to make a lot of these peptides or these hormones or you know, these proteins that have physiological effects. So that's, that's great. So, yeah. Yeah. That's a good, cause I've always like wondered, well, if it's a small, you know, a, a piece of a protein, if you like, why is that more important than the whole protein? So it was always like on my head, like how do I, yeah. how, so when you, when you break it down and to say, if we take an example of a very well-known peptide called BPC-157, for example, 
Yeah. Um, don't even know how many amino acids is in that one particularly, but this is a piece that will go into the body. So this is typically done with injections, although there is some that are pills in pill form. Um, I actually have Dr. William Seeds's pill form of the BPC-157 because it's been easier to get into the country that way. Um, but mostly these are injected, um, subcutaneous little injections that you do. What actually happens when, say, the BPC-157, what is that for, for example, and then what does it go in and do in the body? Yeah, so BPC-157 is a gastric-derived peptide. It's a naturally occurring peptide found within your digestive system, okay? What it does within the digestive tract is it helps to essentially maintain the integrity of that, helps to support those cells, helps to support, you know, the walls that make up, you know, the, the inner lines of our gap junctions and, and maintaining that barrier defense system. But interestingly enough, you know, systemically, which has been experimented with primarily in animal models, there's a couple uh, human studies that have utilized BPC, but can the systemic approach, can aside from those digestive benefits, have been shown to improve, or I would say modulate recovery processes, specifically in the musculoskeletal system. Uh, for example, it has been shown to regulate Again, I don't want to get too technical here, but something I'll called, go for it. Uh, <laughs> hormone receptor expression on uh, tenderness structures. Okay. And what does that mean? Well, when we increase the sensitivity to something we're producing within the pituitary, like growth hormone, um, for that specific structure, that piece that regulates collagen deposition and orderly healing, essentially, again, you're pressing on the accelerator for that given response. Also, it has been shown to modulate, again, it's a, it's a modulator drug I, or a modulating peptide. I describe it kind of as like the multivitamin in the peptide space. Yeah, it's a pretty... So it modulates in the process of angiogenesis or increasing vascularization and blood flow. We all know that, you know, blood or delivery of nutrients is absolutely imperative to recovery, a healing process, Right. So it has an affinity, interestingly enough, to sites of trauma, sites of injury. Mm-hmm. So it specifically can modulate that microenvironment to be wow. better suited for healing and recovery. Wow. So, so that's where I think great. there's benefits between, you know, going after it orally versus going after it systemically. Systemically, you're going to appreciate those systemic effects from a musculoskeletal standpoint a bit more robustly as opposed to taking it orally, where it's, you know, essentially utilized in its microenvironment within the gut and doesn't really have too much systemic effect. So that would be maybe good for the gut health, which BPC 157 is known for anyway, but not systemically. So, so, so this is really good for like wound healing or where you've got an injury, you really need to increase the blood flow. It's also really good for neuron um, regeneration from what I understand. Is that right? Yeah. So again, there's this gut brain access and the idea of how we can actually improve the integrity of the blood brain barrier. Uh, there were some mouse studies that were done with actually severing a nerve and then locally administering the BPC to that given nerve and um, having regenerative effects take place. There's also a mouse model that was done with, you know, pre-treatment of BPC and actually having a brain injury model or dropping a yeah. weight on that mouse and actually having it recover with a bit more grace. Yeah. There's a lot of mechanisms in play with, with uh, BPC-157. Again, it's also known for it being essentially an F-actin sequestering peptide. You know, actin is 
basically this microfilament that needs to be laid down or train tracks that essentially need to be laid down in order to initiate efficient exchange of materials, nutrients, cellular mm -hmm. signals, right? Um, it's also part of the normalized healing process. You know, we need structure, we need order. And that framework is through F-actin um, being laid down to essentially facilitate the framework of a normalized healing process. Wow. Limiting, or I would say, dampening the effects of fibrotic tissue formation or scarring. Yes, orally healing, right? Yep, yep, yep. So, okay, before we go in, I'd like to go and, you know, touch on some of the bigger, well, you know, known uh, peptides. Um, but before we go into that space, like um, where is the peptide space as, a, as, a, as an area of science? Um, there's been an awful lot of uh, animal trials. Yes. There are quite a lot of clinical trials currently underway. Um, is this still the Wild West when it comes to peptides or is this quite a developed space? Because I think this is a, you know, like, you know, this is a show is for educational purposes only and not medical yeah. advice. And if you want medical advice, go and see Brian <laughs> at the Boulder Longevity Institute. But I want to be able to give people a picture of where the space is at and how accessible is it going to be, you think, in the future? Where is there some problems with regulations and all that sort of sort of space if you, you know, yeah. <laughs> access as you know is incredibly challenging so yeah. when it comes to the peptide space again it's incredibly dynamic there's a lot of good work and research a lot of fantastic people you know working hard to get this to a point of clinical relevance okay but a lot of this is on the bench you know when i say bench it's like you know the guy waiting to get called into the game right <laughs> yeah. a lot of bench level you know innovations that are taking place but depending on the area of research, whether that's oncology or, of course, with the elephant in the room, you know, SARS-CoV-2, yep. there's a lot of incredible, I would say, strides coming within this space. It is difficult to, and depending on where you're at, you know, globally speaking, of course, there's governing bodies. We have the FDA, you know, the European Medicines Agency is essentially the equivalent of what we got here, you know, stateside. And they have their own regulations that they have to go through in order to check off these boxes that are exceedingly expensive and very, I would say, glacial yeah. when it comes to green so slow. space. Yeah. yeah. But again, there's peptides that have been utilized effectively all over the world, you know, with a 30-year track record of safety yeah. that are not accessible here in the States. And there's some ideas of, well, how marketable is a given peptide? which if you invest all this time, money, research, resources into developing a given medicine and you don't have rights of market exclusivity, is it really worth your efforts? Yeah, and this a is lot of this is kind of, I would say, kept under wraps because it's used to elucidate some of these mechanisms that are very robust and effective for a given disease process or a given goal. Um, but until they can actually make it a drug that protects the market exclusivity, they're not really going to be standing on the mountaintop shouting out, hey, this no. is awesome and it's available <laughs> to you, unfortunately. Just like but, the hyperbaric behind me, there's just nobody going to be shouting it from the rooftops because of the, yeah, the what is and that's just the way of the world. But what yeah. I think is that, you know, there is 30 years, and, you know, in the case of insulin, that's since the 1920s, we've been using that peptide and other peptides uh, yeah. for a, with, a, with a hugely long, safe track record. Um, and there are some that are, 
you know, it's like for me as a as a you know biohacker extraordinaire, if you like, <laughs> always testing everything. Um, yeah. yeah, you don't want to wait for thirty another thirty years before I get to have the science in my back pocket. You know, <laughs> so there's a little bit of a workaround with that. And the opportunity, which, you know, for me, to kind of distill my role at BLI, for one, I serve as an advocate for my patients that I work with. You know, I try to empower them with knowledge, information, you know, educate them with what is coming down the pipe or what might be available to them. And if it proves necessary, then hopefully a point of access as well. So a lot of these peptides that are in clinical development that have gone through safety trials and are not necessarily widely utilized, um, essentially require what we call an API or an active pharmaceutical ingredient. And we, or Dr. Yurth, as a physician in the state of Colorado, is able to utilize her expertise and, you know, create access to her patients for what she believes is going to be effective for them. Okay. Mm -hmm. And we source through FDA-approved API suppliers, and that gets basically shuttled into the compounding pharmacy space to create a unique medication that again is going to be fit for a given individual wonderful so, yeah so that's the workaround and as far as you know the biohacking space and you know the wild west i know there are a lot of research chemical uh suppliers that are trying to circumnavigate you know some of the hurdles that are involved with the bureaucratic stuff that goes into a, a facility that's for human use yeah um but there's also inconsistent, I would say, inconsistent product that comes out of those because they don't have the same oversight. It's yeah. expensive, and I know there's a lot of good people in the space that are doing fantastic work, but the consistency is not there that we see with the compounding pharmacies that we're able to partner with. Yeah, and this is why it's so exciting to be able to, you know, like work with a team like you guys. And, it, it, you know, like I'm using it for mum you know, with her cancer journey and we're um, about to back on, on, on that. Um, and it's really, really important whether you've got someone like, you know, mum in a, in a diet, in the diet situation, you want to throw the bus at things. Um, yeah. So having that oversight, having that control of that entire supply line and everything is just, is absolutely critical for me for something like this. Absolutely. Um, so it's, lucky. It's, it's guided. It's, yeah. We get labs, we assess what's going on on a cellular level, and we determine what is what your profile represents for one and what it will likely align with. Again, just because yeah. the stuff looks good on paper doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be good for everyone. It's really important to distill down what is going to be effective for you so you're not wasting your time and your money you know, doing a treatment that you don't necessarily need. Yeah. Right? Yeah, because so, it's not cheap, you know, it isn't cheap. Regardless of where you get it from. Yeah. It isn't, and and but it's a really exciting space, and this will evolve. It's a bit like you know the crypto space, <laughs> you know, like it's like when regulation does come in. Hopefully, it's sensible regulation, and hopefully, it'll actually open up the space. You know, the same with peptides. Hopefully, yeah. it, it'll open up the space once we get some more, you know, rail tracks in. It's just I'm, like I you hope know. so. Unfortunately, policy doesn't always meet science. No, <laughs> um, that's a whole other discussion, right? Yeah, so, that's above our pay grade, unfortunately. We don't have a lot of influence on that. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's dive into a couple of the really interesting ones so that people understand, you know, we've, we've talked about BPC-157. Um, let's talk about uh, SES-31, uh, which is a mitochondrial target, I believe. Um, yeah. what, 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 what does that one do? 
<laughs> so SS31 is a mitochondrial peptide that is actually, it does have market exclusivity under, I believe, Stealth. Right. Uh, so it is. Yeah. Up in Canada. Mm-hmm. Um, so unfortunately, there are some sensitivities around access to that. Uh, but it is an incredible peptide. What it does is it targets the inner mitochondrial membrane or this cardiolipin um, layer within the mitochondria that often undergoes a process of what we call lipid peroxidation. Mm. Or, you know, when you have, when you're producing energy, you have to create, or you have to go through this electron transport, transport chain. And that process is, although it's important and absolutely necessary to life, it's not exactly easy on the mitochondria. You know, this lipid peroxidation that I speak of is actually this, reactive oxidative oxidative species effect mm-hmm. that takes place and degrades those fatty uh those lipid uh membranes, membranes yeah okay? so it breaks down these lipid membranes and essentially leaves the mitochondria in a very vulnerable position to not be effective okay so what it's doing is buffering that process creating integrity within the mitochondria so you can essentially continue to produce energy very effectively okay uh-huh. In the disease models that it's being utilized in, in the mitochondrial disorders, again, reestablishing the mitochondrial integrity leads to basically overall system improvement. Heck yeah. That, the basis of everything, that, mitochondria. You're exactly right. No, it's there's some crazy, crazy studies that were done with mitochondria and like implanting essentially, you know, normal mitochondria within cancer cells and reversing those yeah. two. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's pretty incredible work that's being done there. And it's a major, major opportunity for, you know, functioning as a human for as long as possible, optimally. Yeah. Okay. From the performance exciting. aspects to the normal day-to-day stuff, but unfortunately some people, you know, have some debilita- uh, debilitation and, you know, it serves as a remarkable, remarkable opportunity for basically any disease process that you can think of. I think there's a mitochondrial involved. Exactly. It's at the basis of everything. So this is in the membrane of the mitochondria, not of the cell, so to speak. So like in every cell, just for everyone is, you know, like between one and 2,000 mitochondria that are actually in each cell. So this is looking at the integrity of the mitochondria's membrane and trying to stabilize that. Wow, that's cool. And that's what SS31 is. Yeah, that's what SS31 is. It's something that we're working on developing, you know, within our clinic, within our strategic partnerships is essentially a way to enhance the effects of SS31 by adding in other things to it that are going to be synergistic and hopefully help with those effects. So there is ways to, again, navigate that market exclusivity, but you can't just throw a wheel on the side of a Tesla and call it your own. (laughs) your own thing, right? It has to be a functional change that happens with that given given peptide. And formulations, development, that's also a very costly endeavor. But there is some room for optimism that we're going to be able to innovate something here. Oh, good, good. um, um, Yes. (laughs) Let me know more because that would be very beneficial for people with things like cancer as well. Um, Just putting the, the, you know, the thoughts together in my head. because, you know, cancer is a mitochondrial, well, large, it, it is affected by the mitochondrial metabolism yes. um, and genetics are a piece of the puzzle, but it's the communication between the two. So in my head, would that be something that could be beneficial then for 
Absolutely. Of course, people. there's variability from one cancer to the next. Yes, yeah, absolutely. Um, there's a reason why we don't necessarily have a cure for cancer, and I think it's going to be a multimodal approach. Yeah. Uh, but again, it's it's been it's an another possible toll coming down the line. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Now let's look at one that's quite well known, especially amongst the ladies, is GHK um, copper. Um, yeah. Just a copper peptide that's used, obviously, in, in skin creams, among other things, but not only. What, what, what is this one about? Yeah, so GHKCU or GHK attached to a copper molecule actually makes it active, okay? So that's why I think it's important that you go with GHKCU as opposed to just GHK. Nonetheless, there's a lot of deep down cellular mechanisms that, you know, have been involved with this particular tripeptide. And of course, in the aesthetic space, we think about collagen deposition. We think about how it has an effect on reducing fine lines and wrinkles. Um, going a bit deeper, you know, systemically with basically its ability, or at least what's being determined in the preclinical models, its ability to target, you know, genetic sort of uh, issues or uh, mutations or damage that has occurred and actually reorienting that it has a really strong epigenetic piece to it mm -hmm. as well, which again, whether or not that's going to translate to humans is to be determined, but incredible amount of potential. And when it comes to clinical relevance with that, you know, the safety profile has been very, very good. Okay. Mm -hmm. There hasn't been any issues that we've observed. We think about you know, again, its ability to really upregulate collagen deposition. So we think about, you know, too much of something and, and what the extreme might look like. There is some work that has been done within our uh, physician circles where they were actually utilizing it for recovery of an ACL reconstruction surgery, but it actually created too much collagen deposition and actually compromised the integrity of that repair. Wow. Okay. It so too it's kind of, again, needs to be utilized effectively and with caution okay i would say the simplest you know you do get absorption transdermally because it is a small molecule so you do have some systemic effects there wow. so that's probably the safest route you know so get some skin creams <laughs> yeah plus it's a little it's not i mean not to be vain but it is nice to you know target oh, hell yeah glamorous well, look things, right so that's not terrible. And if you can appreciate some of those systemic effects, again, whether or not that translates to the humans is to be determined. Um, but it's a great aesthetic molecule at a minimum. So at the moment, used mostly for skin. And it actually, uh, here, regrowth too, I believe. Like, yeah. uh, you know, with balding, Absolutely. I think that's at least in the animal models, I think. Uh, but um, but definitely for the skin and stuff, so that's one for the ladies. Yeah. Go and get that and the guys. <laughs> we, we do utilize it for post-operative recovery and helping yep. to, you know, minimize, you know, although it does help with collagen deposition, especially in older patients, we try to encourage wound healing effects with that. Wow. And there are some really, really nice effects that we see clinically. As long as it's utilized, you know, with caution and at effective dosing schedules. Yeah, because there's a, there's a, you know, when you're older, for example, your skin gets thinner and uh, much more easily damaged and stuff. So even for that sort of thing, what might be beneficial? To get us Absolutely. I mean, you think about the UV exposure and how that damages yeah. your DNA and how that leaves you in a position that's a little bit more vulnerable or susceptible, right? And helping just with that alone is, is hugely beneficial for a lot of our patients. Wow. Wow. That's GHKCU. Okay. Mm -hmm. And um, and it's an antioxidant and as well, yes. I think. Um, okay. The next one is one that I'm excited about. <laughs> it's one that uh, TA1, Thomas and Alpha 1. What's yeah. this one about? 
So thymosin alpha-1 is all about the immune system. It's an incredible immune modulatory peptide. It's used in overactive immune systems and underactive immune systems. So more traditionally speaking, as an adjuvant to vaccines and older people to actually encourage a response. Mm-hmm. We're actually seeing the effects of that vaccine. So it's just not all for naught. Um, but we utilize it in, in viral hepatitis, you know, certain types of cancers, um, autoimmune diseases like ankylosing spondylitis, where your body is essentially attacking itself because it doesn't really know what's foreign or native. Mm-hmm. Uh, but essentially how I distill down thymosin alpha is it helps with immunosurveillance. Okay. So when I say immunosurveillance, it helps with identification of <laughs> viral, fungal, bacterial bodies that, again, are foreign invaders that sometimes, especially older individuals, need a little help with supporting the robustness of their immune system. It also helps with identification of atypical cells or senescent cells as well mm-hmm. that are essentially bogging down your system. Yeah, It works on this complex. It's like, uh, I don't want to get too technical again, but... Yeah, go you know, for it. <laughs> so major <laughs> histocompatibility complex or this antigen presenting complex that essentially is, I guess how I would describe it is if you're in war, if you're in battle and you have some people that are essentially the bad guys that are in the same uniform as you, right? Yeah, exactly. I'm just alpha will go in and remove that disguise and allow your body to actually identify where you've been infiltrated, essentially. Wow. So. Those are the enemy cells. So it's uncovering. Exactly. So this is like a problem with with, with cancer that I know that the, it, it coats itself in a certain protein, whatever the protein yes. is, that tells the uh, immune system, nothing wow. to see here, move along, I'm fine, I'm part of you. Exactly. <laughs> and, and this basically can help. And that when your immune system is younger, then you're more likely to be able to uh, uncover that camouflage and be able to attack that that cancer cell. Um, and when you get older and your immune system's not working, um, then that, that that one escapes surveillance, so to speak. Um, exactly. And that's, yeah. As you get older, again, those accumulative stressors build up. So it's like, wow, I have all these things to go after. And before you know it, you're exhausted. So to help with immune cell exhaustion, Thymus and alpha is one of the go-tos there for wow. that. So wow. it's a pretty, pretty incredible peptide. It's obviously under some scrutiny with, again, the elephant in the room with COVID. Yeah, because it could fine. help. <laughs> it, yeah. it can definitely help, but as far as it being a cure or anything like that, you know, of course, nothing has been determined there. No, no, no. <laughs> but this is one of because it has, you know, we're shut down by the FDA. Now it's like being reopen for discussion you know rather than which is great be. it has an incredible track record and it's yeah. safe like this is it's, safe as houses this one you know like it's got a huge track record when it comes to its clinical history i mean it's been used in patients as young as 13 months and over 100 years old so the spectrum of patient populations that it has been utilized in with an incredible safety record you know it's pretty vast so it's yeah. kind of frustrating that that's under scrutiny and has been limited as far as access goes, given its broad range of support and effects. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. Profile. Again, to really highlight that. So, like when, we, when we're young, we have this big thymus gland, don't we? It's, it's sort of in the middle of the chest and this sort of shrinks as we get older and older until it's the size of a pea by the time we're yeah. 80. Um, yeah. And that's sort of giving instructions to the immune system um, 
Um, exactly. The, which arm is it? The acquired or the innate immune system? I forgot Both. which one. Both. Both. Um, and, and this sort of deteriorates with age, and this is one of the reasons Absolutely. why we're so much more susceptible to all of the all of the infections. Exactly. That's why older populations are more vulnerable, or immunocompromised patients are obviously more vulnerable to you know certain infiltrative you know viral, bacterial, fungal bodies, and things like that. And again. Your exposures as a kid help you to build up that immune response that is going to carry you through the twilight years to a degree. But as we know, this world is constantly changing and yeah. threats are constantly evolving. So although the body's probably saying, hey, it's good enough, you guys are, you know, past your your years of reproduction. So we don't really need you to focus energy into this mechanism here. Um, you know, we hopefully can account for that by exogenously or from an outside source incorporating thymus and alpha to create a more i would say bolstered immune system yeah, increasing immunological vigor scores essentially wow this is exciting it's super exciting because you know when your immune system is <laughs> flailing you're at the mercy of every horrible thing in the bloody oh, world <laughs> yeah it's also again even with injury right we create what are called damage associated molecular patterns or these proteins that are stimulating a, a pro-inflammatory response that should initiate the healing process. It's mm. up to you know a lot of these thymic peptides to go in and help to clear them out and turn off that stress signal. But if you're in a chronic deteriorative state where your body's sort of ill-equipped to address that need, then you're going to chronically upregulate inflammation and essentially chronically deteriorate, unfortunately. Yeah. And this is where all the autoimmunes, the osteoarthritis, the, you know, cancers, all of these things can come in viruses. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's thymus and alpha-1, so make sure that one's on your radar, guys, uh, going forward because yeah. it's a, a Incredibly very important. Incredibly and, important yeah. as well. And very, the, the safety profile of that one is particularly uh, well-researched, so um, I'm excited to see where that one goes. Let's yeah. look at now a couple of um, fat loss there's always a topic we want to have the ideal weight and so on. And, and for health reasons, we certainly want that. Um, what are some of the, the um, peptides that can help in this, in this area? So probably the one that has been in the headlines more recently is semaglutide or this glucagon-like one peptide agonist. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So again, it's a synthetic peptide that's modeled after the naturally occurring GLP-1 within our body. Um, but what it does is it essentially regulates metabolic processes. It's more traditionally utilized for glucose control with diabetes. It's, again, a modulator of that. Although hypoglycemia or decreased blood sugar can occur, it's uh, more of a regulator of that. For one, it helps. It's a, another gastric-derived peptide. It helps with digestive processes. It slows things down. You know, makes your body, I would say, better equipped to break things down a bit more thoroughly slowing down the flux or the change of nutrients. So it's like I drink a milkshake. I'm not having a crazy insulin spike. It's just a graded, you know, level of um, glucose into the system. Yeah, okay. brilliant. It's a lot easier to regulate. Wow. Okay. But it also stimulates metabolism. So it has a central nervous system component, which again, for those of you that have done semaglutide, you know, you might experience an elevated heart rate. There's an interesting effect, again, metabolically speaking, where you're actually up-regulating your metabolism. Wow. So you're increasing basically your resting metabolic rate, which is going to lead to an increased energy utilization and 
decreased fat storage as well. Does this this affect fat. like your thyroid? Like, is that, you know, affect, uh, working at, on the thyroid for the base metabolic rate or is it another sort of mechanism? It's working in some central components within the brain, actually. Wow. Wow. So yeah, so I didn't know that one. Yeah, there's a lot of GLP receptors found throughout the body. You know, I would say the other highlights to that aside of, of course, it's fun to lose weight and be skinny and lean. Um, but it also has been shown to, again, regulate metabolic processes within the brain, making things more efficient, where it can actually be utilized to prevent or reverse certain cognitive issues and disorders. Wow. wow. So the effects yeah. within the heart, although it's upregulating, you know, resting heart rate, some people might look at that as a stress, which, which it is. Um, the cardioprotective effects and the effects within the cardiomyocytes or the, the cells within the heart are actually very reparative and very, I would say, supportive to cardiovascular function overall and how it regulates inflammation. We all know chronic upregulation of inflammation can lead to disease processes and its ability to regulate that, modulate that, dampen that expression, especially you know, with the American diet that we see, people just feeding themselves with poisons, you know, leading to the slow increase of sterile inflammation, breaking down, you know, your vascular integrity, you know, all these issues associated with metabolic syndrome or metabolic dysfunction. The GLP-1 agonist is something that I'm very excited about. Wow. Give me that stuff. (laughs) I I think you're doing pretty well um, in your fitness, but of course we always want to optimize things where we can. Just interrupting the program briefly to let you know that we have a new patron program for the podcast. Now, if you enjoy pushing the limits, if you get great value out of it, we would love you to come and join our patron membership program. We've been doing this now for five and a half years and we need your help to keep it on air. It's been a public service free for everybody and we want to keep it that way. But to do that, we need like-minded souls who are on this mission with us to help us out. So if you're interested in becoming a patron, Patron for Pushing the Limits podcast, then check out everything on patron.lisatamati.com. That's P-A-T-R-O-N dot lisatamati.com. We have two patron levels to choose from. You can do it for as little as $7 a month, New Zealand, or $15 a month if you really want to support us. So we, we are grateful if you do. There are so many membership benefits you're going to get if you join us. Everything from workbooks for all the podcasts, the strength guide for runners, uh, the power to vote on future episodes, uh, webinars that we're going to be holding, all of my documentaries, and much, much more. So check out all the details, patron.lisatamati.com, and thanks very much for joining us. Yeah, and and it isn't, you know, the, the... you know, as, as someone in their 50s now and having gone through hormonal changes and all of the rest of the things that come in at you and, and mm-hmm. uh, you know, um, slowing down and thyroid and all the, all the, all the sorts of issues. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a fine balancing act all the time, you know. And, and, you know, touch wood, I'm sort of uh, on top of it at the moment, but I'm always looking at the next thing because all of this sort of stuff is when you start to slow down your metabolic dysregulation, all of that sort of stuff is yeah. the gateway to all of the big drugs of ageing, you know, all, all of the big Absolutely. problems of ages, ageing. So we want to even – so I've never heard of that one. That one's um, – No, it's a, it's a good one, but it is important, again, just because, you know, semaglutide represents something very exciting on paper. You know, more is not always better. And for individuals that can have – you know, incorporated this into their regimens or have 
you know, gone that route, whether it's guided by a provider or sort of the biohacking community, it's important to understand some of the consequences there. So it does impact digestion, right? It slows down gastric emptying. And that has led to a pretty fair degree of, you know, people experiencing nausea as food sits in your digestive tract a little longer, stimulating your vagus nerve, you know, encouraging sort of this, this nausea inducing effect, whether it's vomiting, GI discomfort, distress, distension, you know, all that's important to be sensitive to as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And this is why we need some more studies and stuff, but exciting stuff. Uh, what else have we got? Um, so CJC, 1295, Edmore Allen is yeah. another favorite in the space. Yeah, so CJC 1295, um, I would say it's commonly mixed up with mod GRF 129. Yep. Uh, so the CJC 1295 that we use is actually mod GRF 129. CJC 1295, traditionally speaking, it's a growth hormone releasing hormone um, that has a very long half-life. And if you're overstimulating that pathway, it can come with some issues, you know, upregulation of growth hormone, even super physiologic levels or beyond normal levels that can lead to a host of issues, whether that's fluid retention or, you know, neuropathic pain because you have increased pressure on those structures. You know, it's important to, again, be cautious with that. Mod GRF is, or Mod GRF 129 um, has a shorter half-life. It's more pulsatile. It's more physiologic. We utilize that to encourage more robust growth hormone production, especially in the setting of growth hormone deficiencies, which are very common than as we progress our years. Okay. Yeah, yeah, as we get older and we start producing less and less. Wow, okay. Um, and, and is that one – so so for people who have growth hormone deficiencies or the older population or younger people who have deficiencies, is this an alternative to growth hormone? Because, we, you know, growth hormone was very popular if I think about, you know, some of the – our action heroes that were on our screens a few years ago were into the growth hormones. Yeah. What are the downsides of having it when it's a growth hormone directly as opposed to a growth hormone stimulating hormone? Absolutely. So when it comes to this normal physiology that we try to appreciate or we try to mimic or model is growth hormone release is pulsatile. Okay. It's not a sustained release, especially if you're introducing exogenous or outside growth hormone that has this chronic elevation of growth hormone within your body, your body's going to try to shut that down through mm. negative So it's going to go after what we call somatotropes or the cells that actually produce and release growth hormone within the pituitary. And it's going to say, hey, guys, stop. Hey, guys, stop. And even though they're not doing anything, they're still going to be shut down because that's how the body is uh, that's how the body um, regulates, yep. those uh, regulates through those negative feedback loops. So if you're bypassing that, you can actually develop a dependence because you're shutting down your own ability to produce growth hormone. Whereas these growth hormone releasing factors. Ghana, sorry. To, no, you're fine. Um, <laughs> I forgot to put the phone off, people. <laughs> you're absolutely fine. I know you, you got a lot going on on, on your side, so no, no big deal, but. Again, the, the idea of these growth hormone releasing factors, especially in this pulsatile fashion, you're not going to compromise. In fact, you're going to support your own physiology. You're going to support your body's ability to produce. And you know, it's often used with a GHRP or growth hormone releasing peptide because of the synergy there, creating more robustness behind those releases, but also encouraging, I would say, a greater expression of somatotropes as well. 
So you're increasing actually the cells that are, or you're replenishing the cells that produce growth hormone. You're retraining your circadian rhythm to release it again in this rhythmic right. fashion, yeah. as opposed to just chronic constant. Direct, yeah. Oh wow! Because because hormones are funny things, aren't they? If you if you put too much in and body down regulates it and stops your own production, so like the problem with you know young guys um, taking testosterone or whatever for bodybuilding or whatever they they are down regulating their natural uh, production of this, and this can be problematic later on. You know, it can be, and not to say again, growth hormone doesn't have its place because no. there are people that can utilize it very effectively, especially with again post operative operative healing when it comes to protein synthesis and, you know, um, collagen deposition and encouraging those, those systems. But if you utilize it and abuse it, then you're going to risk shutting down your body's abilities. Okay. Yeah. And anything that's intelligent. Cause we have everything in hormone is pulsed and it's a bit like, uh, which is completely off topic, but like the contraceptive pill, the issues that are around that where you have it every day at the same level, that's not how nature, nature made it. It has yeah. a certain rhythm and that rhythm's just being completely ignored when you go and expose yourself to those hormones every day for, you know, 21 exactly. days of your cycle. And everything operates in a rhythm, right? Yeah. Everything has its own clock. Okay? Yeah. And, you know, when we naturally have the most, arguably the most robust levels of growth hormone being released is at night, because that's going to suppress cortisol, allow your body to be sort of in a position to have a restful night of sleep, you know, actually open up lymphatic flow, clear out all those toxins that accumulated throughout the day, mm. suppress the stress hormones, so you're actually not up and, you know, wound tight about something that, yeah. you know, work or whatever life-related issue that you're manifesting there. It's helping to, again, leave you in a position to recover. And this is why sleep's so important, people, because you do yeah, have of course. <laughs> <laughs> and why I love sauna because you know sauna can naturally boost your your uh, growth hormone levels and things like that. So there are natural ways to do it, but then there are these ways as well, which is that's that's really interesting. Um, what other uh, what other ones? There's things like um, uh, how do you say that? Pinealin, pine, pine I can never say that. Pineal something. There's pineal gland derived peptides. That's one. Well. I'm more familiar with as epitalon. You know, that's something that we utilize clinically. Um, as far as, you know, the other uh, pinealion, uh, I'm actually not all that familiar with its use. Um, there's limited work, I would say, that I have access to, given that a lot of it is done in Russia or Ukraine, yep. you know, places like that. So as far as translating that data, you know, creating reasonable protocols, at least with um, my expertise on the state side, you know, creating something that's going to be safe and effective, you know, some of that's a little bit limited to me yep. as far as access goes. Yep. So here, but um, and what about things like um, cerebralysin was one that I was, um, you know, with uh, people with strokes and and dementia and and things like that. That's a really got quite a lot of studies. That's out of Austria. Um, yes. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about cerebralysin because I think that's a bloody important one. Yeah, so this is one that, again, is incredibly important and access has been difficult, at least on the state side. And I'm not sure why, given it, again, this one specifically has a 30-year track record being safe and also effective. In uh, 2020, the German Society of Neurorehabilitation deemed it one of the gold standard treatments for yeah. rehabilitation for, for yep. stroke. Okay. Yeah. So what it is essentially is a collection 
of neuropeptides, collection of neutrophins, brain-derived neutrophic factor, you know, all these things that are going to support your nervous system, either from an inflammatory perspective, down-regulating these pro-inflammatory responses that can be damaging to those neurons, or actually supporting, you know, nerve growth, okay? And it's an incredible peptide. The challenge with anything that we incorporate or try to utilize, you know, especially centrally, is crossing into the blood-brain barrier. And that's why we have to use a bit higher dosing schedules for cerebral lysin, because there's some limited, I would say, crossing into the blood-brain barrier effects there. Okay. There is some really exciting work. Again, when we talk about bench level stuff with these, um, with these ideas that are coming down the pipe, there is something, I believe it's called uh, HAV6 that transiently disrupts the blood brain barrier to allow delivery. Yeah, we talked about that, eh? Last time we had a. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, it's like, wow, we can do it transiently and then shut it back. Yeah, so it binds to this uh, protein called cadherin, and it, again, transiently opens up these portals within the blood-brain barrier to allow delivery of of drugs. Effectively, there were some really interesting mouse models that were done with, you know, another molecule that I believe it's AT, uh, I have to forget that, ADT5 or C5, and how that was utilized in conjunction with a larger protein to actually be delivered to a mouse model of Alzheimer's disease. And the effects were incredible. Wow. So this is exciting, exciting exciting space to, you know, be a part of and see this stuff come through. Um, The human trials aren't there yet, but there is room for optimism. That's that's going to actually lead to effective treatments for cognitive disorders like Alzheimer's disease, which we don't have anything effective. Yeah. Helps for sure. But to create more robustness behind that, we're going to need something along those lines. Wow, this is crazy. And I mean, in the cerebralizing space, it's, you know, mostly been done in Austria and, and Germany, I think. And, um, and and it's very exciting because there's so many people suffering with strokes and, and you know, dementias and things like that. And if we can an regenerate work, brains. Yeah. Incredible work all over the world with cerebralizing. It's, again, a shame that it's not more widely available because it does help a lot of people in spite of some of those challenges with the blood-brain barrier crossing and delivery of those molecules, whether it's stroke, brain injury, you know, Alzheimer's disease, like we mentioned, or even peripheral nervous issues like uh, neuropathic pain or, you know, damage to the spinal cord, right? Cerebral license represents something that is very exciting, but we also have to encourage, you know, again, effectiveness through these other hurdles and barriers there. Yeah, 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 getting it. One last one I'd like to look at is, or two actually, Humanin and MOTC. So um, MOTC, what is this? This is mimics adversity in the body. Why why would that be a good thing? (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, so MOTC is a mitochondrial-derived peptide, again. And to kind of distill that one down, what it has been shown to do is increase mitochondrial biogenesis or new formation of mitochondria. Okay. There's been some really interesting studies that have measured, you know, in humans, levels of MOTC and how that correlates with longevity or these super centenarians that, you know, live beyond 100, 110 years old have really robust levels of of MOTC. Wow. And again, how that's going to translate to actually supplementing your body with MOTC is to be determined. There is a researcher out of, I believe, USC, Pincus Cohen, who is 
one of the primary drivers of these mitochondrial-derived peptides that's doing absolutely incredible work. Um, there's, uh, again, a huge amount of excitement because of what that can translate to when it comes to metabolic dysfunction or all these different disease states that it could essentially help with. Uh, but again, it's mostly been studies done either assessing levels of MOTC within humans or determining how we can incorporate exogenous MOTC within mouse models. Okay. Wow. Yep. A lot of that is kind of under wraps. I know Pincus Cohen is working hard and, you know, <laughs> he should protect his work to a degree, but um, it's incredibly exciting. Again, what those mitochondrial derived peptides represent when yeah. it comes to performance, especially you know, especially as someone like yourself, who is an incredible athlete, not to say, well, you know, <laughs> give someone else the unfair competitive advantage there, but <laughs> it can help people, you know, at least boost their abilities a little bit, right? So at least that's what the thought is behind that. Oh, crazy. This is really cool. And the last one I look at, I mean, there's other ones like C-Link and C-Max and, and stuff, but um, it's humanin. That's another one, mitochondrial-derived uh was what, what one is that what does that do what yeah so that? same sort of idea you know there's some ideas behind you know utilizing MOTC with human end because of their synergistic effects to encourage again more i would say a greater density of mitochondria and greater level of integrity but also targeting this idea of metabolic flexibility your body's ability to adapt to you know and sense, you know, substrates that are available, whether that's, you know, proteins, fats, sugars, and utilize them to, you know, stimulate metabolic activity in the setting of stress or uh, in the setting of, I would say, depletion, where you don't necessarily have what you're accustomed to utilizing as a primary energy source, like glucose, for example, yeah. and being able to switch over and effectively and gracefully utilizing a given substrate to maintain mitochondrial function. Wow. So like, you know, because this is one of the things why, uh, with keto diet, you know, and have, taking exogenous ketones and trying to teach your body to be more metabolically flexible. So this is something that perhaps could uh, to, to upregulate that sort of process, you're sort of saying, help exactly. with that metabolic flexibility. Wow. This idea cool. of metabolic flexibility and how that translates to overall system integrity, resiliency. Yep. And performance. And performance, man, that could be massive on performance. I can yeah. like, you know, the, like we were talking about earlier, policies in place don't always make that easy for us to incorporate. Um, interestingly yeah. enough, I was talking with Dr. Yurth about, you know, this super sapiens sensor that, you know, um, I don't know if you're familiar with it. it no. Or it tracks glucose in real time. It tracks oh. ketones and yeah. lactate in real time. Oh, wow. All it's three. Amazing. All three. three. Wow, not just glucose anymore. Not just glucose anymore. So when it comes to the performance side of things and keeping a sort of pulse check on the situation when you're in sport, you know, that can serve, okay, I need to, I don't know, supplement with ketones now because X, Y, Z is happening. Or I need to, you know, eat a gummy or, you know, something (laughs) like I need to do a goo pack, right? In order to account for some of these signs that are leading to potential uh, potential performance you know diminishment. drops massive drops when you get you get it wrong i can tell you that much it's like someone's pulled the plug on you when you when you hit the wall yeah. it's just like huh someone just emptied the fuel tank exactly <laughs> we need that sensor is amazing it. like the potential behind that wow. but it's banned in sport at least in the states so. hey because it, oh, oh. so what was it called again super sapien 
It's uh, the, the company Super Sapiens. I believe Super Abbott Sapiens. is actually the, the producer of it, which they make the CGM monitors as well. Yeah, the, yep. the uh, glucose, the freestyle. Yeah, the leader. glucose monitor. Yep. Because mm-hmm. and this is like, yeah, this, the, I mean, the therapeutic effects for this, the, you know, apart from the athletic performance side, the therapeutic, when you know, hey, that banana that you just ate just sent your glucose levels right up or that exogenous ketone drink you just had sent your, your ketones up, more good, you know, like exactly. then you can monitor exactly. and modulate and help avoid you metabolic see, dysregulation. Exactly what your system's doing as an individual. Yeah. To real-time and feedback, like a dashboard. Real-time feedback. Heart. <laughs> real-time feedback that allows for real-time adjustments wow. and accounting for some of those issues and deficits. And I say it's banned in sport. It's actually banned in the U.S. currently. In just in the awesome. U.S. sport. Yeah. Well, I can see it would be a huge advantage. Awesome oh, it's banned. It's like it's banned. Why the hell would they ban? Like for therapeutic. Uh, I don't yeah, get policy that. Policy doesn't always meet science, right? No, like it could help people, you know, <laughs> like go figure. <laughs> like we, have, we have dashboards in our car with all these different metrics, you know, if you've got a new car, which I don't, but if you've got a new car with all these things that you can measure and know about in the engine of your car and we don't know anything about what's under the hood, we might get a blood test once, twice a year if you're really lucky, um, and then you sort of got to fight for what they test. And, and, and not knowing any of these things, you know, just a, a very quick example with mum's uh, regimen that she's on, all of a sudden her homocysteine level's gone up and I'm like, that, that's that's real time for well, not real time, but that's very quick feedback. Immediately, I need to do something. I need to support a methylation. I need to, you know, give a, you know, TMG or whatever the case exactly. may be. I can go exactly. and modify that now, and then I can see next week when I get another blood test if I've actually had an effect. Now, if I don't, then her risk of heart attack in the next, you know, six months goes up, you know, uh, yeah. a lot. So that to me is like I can monitor, I can keep up if I can get access to those things. And this exactly. is what playing catch up. Yeah. That. Yeah, you, you sort of, but at least, you know, with, but this is the thing, most of us are not getting, you know, two weekly blood draws like she is because of the situation yeah. she's in. So we don't know, like our homocysteine levels has gone up. Oh, well, I had no idea or what the hell that is even. Or, what you know, environmental factors are contributing to that Yeah, from a day-to-day perspective, yep. things that you're very, e- not easily in control of, but are very much in arm's reach of control. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or dietary changes, supplemental, you know, for her, you know, if we put in something like trimethylglycine, if we put in folinic acid, if we put in, you know, adenosyl B12, what that may solve that problem and we're back to, you know, we're on the right track again, you know, and that's just one marker. But there's, yeah. there's, there's lots of things that we could be monitoring and just making sure we're not going off the rails and then only when we're in the shit – completely yeah. do we actually go and go oh okay you know yeah. <laughs> why it's a form of accountability real-time feedback and to allow you to have some specific guidance right yeah. with what you need as an individual so yeah yeah it's can. very very cool hey look you've been absolutely awesome today brian i really appreciate your time your expertise i'm excited to have uh, to be working with you in the bold longevity institute i want to encourage everybody and i know some of my listeners have gone and joined the bold longevity uh, academy um which uh, is really great because if you want ongoing education that's the place to get it and if you want support from brian or from dr elizabeth youth um i will have all the links in the show notes um brian anything else that you wanted to add to the to the conversation before we wrap it up yeah no first of all thank you again for your time 
I know oh, I you're <laughs> a very, very busy individual. And I, again, really appreciate you giving me the opportunity to talk with you today. It's always a pleasure connecting with you when I have the chance. Um, and with that being said, you know, for those of you that are listening, you know, it's important, I would say, to have guidance, whether that's with me or someone else that is skilled and understands this constantly evolving field, you know, to really do things effectively. So you know, I would encourage you, I know there's a lot of savvy people out there, but at least get some guardrails when you start to uh, get into this space, you know, with more and more, I would say, degrees of aggression here. Okay. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, don't this is the yeah, don't don't go and do it all on your own. But this puts it on people's radar. This creates more interest in it. It creates more education around this. And exactly. as things come, uh, it will get easier and easier, as with all of these things, they do eventually, you know, um come about. And we can get them. We can get them. There are ways and means, um, mm-hmm. like working with you. Um absolutely. so so there is hope. And if you're in dire straits, then definitely reach out to these guys because you definitely want to, you know, if you're in a situation like I am with mum, then you want to do it now. You know, and you want that guidance. You don't want to be just throwing mud at the wall. Uh, Brian, thank you very much for your time today. I really appreciate it, your expertise. Absolute pleasure. I look forward to talking with you again soon, okay? That's it this week for Pushing the Limits. Be sure to rate, review and share with your friends and head over and visit Lisa and her team at lisatarmaty.com 